Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to My Creative Classroom, an EdTech podcast that interviews industry experts about supporting teachers in transforming education. Today we are going live from the Atlantic Education Summit, and I am pleased to be joined by conference keynote speaker, Dr. Alec Kuros. Alec, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. So let's kick things off, uh, Dr. Kuros, for both the listeners who are joining us here live in our call, but also for the listeners who are possibly listening at home from their preferred streaming platform. Tell us a little bit about who you are and your role in education. Uh, again, my name is Alec Kuros. I'm a professor of educational technology and media at the University of Regina. Uh, I spend my most of my days working uh, with graduate students and, and undergraduate students uh, to develop uh, ed tech or digital competencies uh, to prepare them for the classroom or, or prepare, prepare new teachers for the classroom or to uh, have tenured uh, teachers uh, start to think about uh, integrating technology more into their own practice. Um, other, other things I do, I'm, I'm also the director of our faculty-based research center um which, which keeps me quite busy and uh i do a lot of consulting work and working with schools and industry and uh, uh higher ed um, whether it's keynotes or or presentations but consulting roles as well taking on um you know looking at documents to uh like policies that they may have around uh, technology and so on uh, I also spend a lot of time with young people with digital learning summits and you know digital citizenship as well. So uh, I get I get I'm very fortunate to see many aspects and many uh, many of the many uh, sides of the sector, uh, the education sector in general. Uh, and it's great to be able to connect to kids and and to uh, my colleagues and other teachers who are uh, dealing with some of the issues we're seeing here, especially around instructional technology and media. And it sounds like you have, you know, a, a variety of areas where you focus in education. And you mentioned kind of this uh, students looking at how to use ed tech. And I'm sure through this global pandemic, the current reality that we're in, that has really transformed a the use of ed tech for, for your current university purposes, but also looking at what it is that we can use in the teaching profession. Yeah, I think what's happened is you certainly can't ignore ed tech anymore. It's, you know, it was sidelined it, it was taken up by some um i mean there's some level of it that goes across most institutions like your average you know learning management system or some web conferencing or um you know you might have something like clickers or whiteboard or you know, smart boards or, or something in the classroom that is sort of um you know te ed tech in the background that's that's quite ambient um versus you know thinking about um you know if you were to take a SAMR model for instance uh, looking at moving edtech integration to the point where you're not just substituting, you know, one technology for another technology to, to do similar things, but has you know having a, a higher price tag in most cases. But looking at um, uh, redefining what you actually do as a as an educator, um, and of course with with COVID, I think there's been a lot of redefinition of. Uh, you know, how we take up classes uh, and uh, even a reckoning of how how we taught before and how we might have to teach in the future um, because, you know, the, the things that we took for granted, space, being in the, in the same room with others, uh, that's taken away from you. So how do you build presence? How do you build trust? How do you 
engage students. So I think uh, ed tech is one of the things uh, combined with good pedagogy to be able to solve some of those issues that we're seeing. That's a key component as well. It's not just about the technology, but also the pedagogy and implementation yeah. of said technology uh, to really help you know transform that learning. And, and you mentioned the SAMR model, and it's really looking at how and where it fits on that model and, and the fluidity in that as well and, and, and utilizing it in that form. Uh, you talked about in your keynote today um, about digital citizenship. So in the world of education and even kind of beyond education, how can we help promote this this idea of healthy digital citizenship on a global scale? Uh, you know, great, great question. Uh, I, I know that, um, you know, it's particularly in the U.S. and Canada, digital citizenship has taken hold. Uh, it's not as big of a concept outside of North America. Uh, it's a fairly North American specific. You'll, you'll see some in Australia, um, some in the U.K., but uh, outside of that, there's not a whole lot of penetration. There is the term cyber safety, which I mentioned, um, had a lot of traction but it really focuses on what you can't do versus what you can do. And I think digital citizenship um, starts to empower people to think differently about it, especially if you take it um, more like more literally in terms of the definition. The, the, pro the problem I always have with digital citizenship is it still has those throwbacks to um, you know, cyber safety and um, keeping kids safe, which I think is, you know, fine and important part of it. But the citizenship part is totally missing. I think it's, uh, you know, it's this idea of what does it mean to be a good citizen or a global citizen? Um, so I think a big part of that and, and you know, back to the question of how do we take this globally is uh, to make part of the curriculum those those global connections, understanding uh, you know, other, other parts of the world, um, cultures that we're not familiar with. Um, but doing that in a, uh, in a, in a safe way, in a respectful way, in a way that's not, um, uh, you know, kind of the old spectator or parachuting, uh, perspective, actually looking at making connections that are mutually beneficial, um, between the parties rather than taking from whatever countries we tend to pop into. Uh, so, so I think citizenship, um, uh, the citizenship piece is really important. Um, and as we consider global citizenship, we have to look outside what citizenship means as a Canadian or as an American. But what does that mean uh, to work together on problems, uh, to work together on things that affect all of us? And so that advocacy part, that uh, a proactive piece of digital citizenship is more important than ever. Uh, we can't just, you know, uh, protect. We have to also move move ahead uh, and take some risks. And I think that's uh, that's good as long as you have teachers that are able to, uh, you know, catch you if you fall and who have proper training in terms of connecting and uh, connecting the students to these new experiences. And of course, if there's policy to also. Uh, support that so you have an idea of how to protect students, student identity, and so on. You know, you have a valid point there. When we talk about digital citizenship, it's almost just as valuable to learn what citizenship is, um, yeah. you know, even in your own country or where you are prior to even going to the global scale, um, which is something overlooked, right? We go too big before we, we even just looked at to see what's in our own backyard uh, prior to moving beyond that. Um, yeah, and absolutely. And I think um, there's actually a great uh, example of a duty. Oops, sorry, I've got, I've, 
some this audio came up there. Hanrahan. Where's He's that coming from? He's an civics teacher at Ridgemont High School who's doing it right. Sorry, I've got something playing in the background. <laughs> a, it feels like Inception. It does, actually. I think it was just in the preview window. Um, sorry. Well, it's a good thing that you get to edit your podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'll keep sure it for the blooper reel. Hanrahan apparently isn't uh-huh. the norm. Okay, here more we go. Than a decade, a uni- there we go. Happened to be in preview. Apple's bringing in all these new uh, uh, features that we don't necessarily need. <laughs> <laughs> just search for. Um, so what I was looking for is uh, uh, Great Resource by Joel Westheimer. So he's a professor at uh, University of Ottawa. Um, and he, he works specifically in the area of citizenship and um, and he, he speaks actually about uh, three different types of citizenship. Um, the idea of, um, you know, you have your sort of standard citizen um, who kind of cuts their lawn and, you know, does kind of what you would do for yourself. But then there's participatory and justice oriented citizenship. Um, and so we have to we have to kind of put that lens of digital citizenship on other theoretical lenses around what citizenship means so i think they have to connect uh, in a in a real way yeah absolutely and and to your point of even different types of of citizenships uh, and really diving into what that means um as a person as a school community as a class um and then going abroad uh so yeah. another question that we have is, is so what is what is what is it to you the best way to improve critical thinking skills with media and technology for our students? I think it's a, it's about getting out of um, some of the examples that we often use in classrooms. So, um, and they're, they're not bad. They're not a bad place to start. So you get <clears throat> the Northwest tree octopus, or, you know, you get those sorts of sites where you have these mythical creatures that live there. But like, if you're looking, so something like that example, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but people can look it up. So it's a Northwest, northwest tree octopus or octopus that lives up in the trees in the northwest of the united states um so you you know you share this with students and you you know ask them to be critical about it but not much critical thinking is actually done Um, most kids um, have domain specific knowledge that says octopi don't live in trees and therefore this is probably fraudulent i mean that's where it ends there's not a set of questions there's not they're not looking at uh, the authority of the exam, you know, some of the checklists that you might look at. So, so some of the uh, examples that we use don't take us very far in terms of a critical thinking exercise. But there are plenty of non-fictional examples every single day that we can bring into the classroom. Um, tweets, for instance, or images, or anything spread on Facebook. Um, you know, things that we can find appropriate for our students. These are real life examples. We don't have to pretend anymore that these are these that these are sites i i think it's a good to start with younger younger people but we need to introduce the reason for this so for instance i don't know if there's a day that you could go by where something you know doesn't blow up in the media that's uh you know a, a fake truth or fake news or something uh that you can't possibly connect with in the classroom and i think that's where we have to get real uh, is that uh, information literacy is not something that that we might do. It's something we have to do continually. And we need to bring in examples uh, to demonstrate how we might do that uh, in, in real ways. So I think that's 
a big start is get away from the fictional, the make-believe, and understand that this is a, a huge problem of our time, and we need, we need to use real, raw examples uh, with our students. So we'll dive into those real-life examples, because in your keynote, uh, you refer to your own experience with identity theft and, and dealing with kind of regaining your identity how do we how as we as educators or even in the world how can we inform our students of this reality that identity identity theft exists whether it's TikTok or Snapchat and all of these different social media platforms that we're willingly just kind of putting our information out there um, and then kind of experiencing this this theft if you will yeah so I, I don't use the word identity theft so much just because I, I think my identity is intact in um, but there are people who use my um, my photos to create alternate identities. Some of them will use my name and a you know name and uh, photos, but those are the ones that are easy to take down. For the most part, if, if a new Alec Caro's page shows up on Facebook, uh, Facebook has a fairly straightforward process of getting that down, and most social networks do because they're actually impersonating you. But you get someone with a total different name and your photos. That's a different thing because you know is it satire is it protected is it is it um you know uh you know as a micro celebrity you know sometimes you might get lumped into that you know you don't have the same um uh protections i guess so as the average citizen i wouldn't say i i would probably still be under the uh you know protections category but as your profile escalates as you as you, as you get more followers you get into that iffy territory that you know you're a you're a public figure of some sort, and they don't have the same protections. Um, and so, you know, thinking about um, uh, these types of problems, it was only till I opened up about the problem where I kept on seeing these fake uh, fake profiles come up that all these other people started saying, you know, this happened to me. This is happening to me. Uh, and then people that didn't know um, that it was happening to them, they would, you know, come to a workshop, they would do a reverse image search of some of their photos and notice that it was happening to them, but they had no idea that it was happening to them. So this, this is much more, these are problems that are much more prevalent than we think. And, and we have to remember that um, the scammers that are behind these, that are very effective, uh, and we can go into, you know, who's behind them, but ultimately, it's not just a single person. It's a person in a distant country that's connected to organized crime that does this for a living, like they, and they do well for a living. Uh, it, so the photos you want to take are the photos we share. We, we share our our best photos. You know, the photos where we look the best. We have our most not our most intimate photos, but photos of you know us with children, loving, endearing photographs. And uh, so those are the photos that got picked up, like me as me, you know, looking as as a, a good father. I, I, I think I am a good father, but, you know, a photo that represents uh, someone, you know, who's, you know, presenting someone who looks successful and might be wearing a suit or whatever it might be. And then there I am with my kids. Those are the photos that you can take and create stories of. And those stories are endearing, they're attractive to whatever demographic you're looking forward to scam. And then, you know, understanding that as a scammer, if I'm, if I'm looking at victims, I can just type in, so I'm middle-aged, right? So um, if I'm looking for someone that might be in my category to scam, uh, I might think of a name that was popular in the 1970s. 
And then I would say, okay, so let's Doris. I don't know. Maybe that's that <laughs> so. But I would look up Doris widowed on Facebook, and you essentially get a list of victims, and maybe even look for widowed or uh, or divorced. And uh, it's amazing how often they go after widowed or divorced um, women who might be just out of a marriage or or just had someone uh, who lost their spouse and who are incredibly vulnerable and don't really have a sense of how the internet works and how bad people can actually be. So you're just like a deer in headlights when this comes. And, and this person comes into your life that uh, you know seems to be attracted to you, who phones you every day, who sends you messages, like all the things that you've ever wanted. They do this very, very well. And we'll talk for months or weeks, months, years with these people until they can just like milk them for all the money they can have. This happens a lot. And they're basically creating this story, right? Like you said, they look for the best right. pictures. They're looking for the best background, if you will, to create this story so that these people yeah. fall victim to this, basically this imagination, if you will. Yeah. So it's changed the way that I share things. Like, so I share, you know, things I share on Facebook are you know, much more private, especially with my children and so on. Uh, and then every photo I put up in a public space, like how can this be used? Um, you know, how might this be used in someone else's narrative? Uh, so, so these are really important pieces. So we have to be very choosy about where we share, who we share with. Um, and then even recognizing that <clears throat> it takes one weak link in your network. So, <clears throat> um, so for instance, if, if you get this, strange friend request and you notice that a bunch of other people also friend this person so you think well this person must be someone i know or someone that i could know once that person's in you know once they once someone has let them into your network and then someone else does it's just all of a sudden all of these people get to know them and i'm amazed by how many friend requests i get who have like 30 mutual friends but no one's vetted them and then you look at them and it's it's easily just a fake person but you're letting them into other people's networks so we have to collectively start to, um, you know, detect these profiles or whatever it might be, just the same way that we sh we're supposed to detect news, the things that we share. We're supposed to critically analyze them before we share them, like at least cross-check them with Snopes or something fairly simple um, before we spread these things. But the problem is they're sensational. They, they appeal to our senses. Um, they make us feel vindicated for, you know, our political beliefs or whatever else. And when they're out there, they're out there and they're, um, they're raw. Someone trusts you. They don't bother um, cross-checking. And it's just this wave of misinformation that we participate in. And we're such, we're just of trusting nature, right? You, you, you are, trust all, yeah. oh, you have 30 mutual friends. I must, exactly to your point, I must know you somehow. And we just trust that there's no malice coming out of this, you know, accepting yeah. this friend request. So it's just that even as adults and as, as, as youth, we need to put on almost this filter of not just fake news, um, but also like these fake accounts, these bot accounts or out of malice and, and yeah. not trying to dig too deep into them, but just knowing, you know, I'm putting myself out there who is, who is entering my bubble, if you will, um, yeah. in that sense, and just preparing ourselves for that. And you mentioned a couple yeah. things about politics. So this will be a great transition to our question about political views. Um, so the question is, digital citizenship implies discussing issues that are a subject to having differences of opinion. Do you have any tips on managing extremes when discussing political issues in the classroom or online? 
you know, it's a it's a tough call right now. Um, I mean, we're we're in such a you know a, a polarized environment right now, where um, I, in my province, for instance, there was a um, you know small town that did a Christmas pageant, but they did an oil environment conscious um, sort of version of it, basically. Uh, I'm not sure where they got the script or, you know, it ended up being a, this big problem because we're in Saskatchewan, which is, you know, highly resource dependent and, um, you know, everything has to be very pro oil or pro resources. And so as, as a teacher, if you bring in anything around the environment, you're looked at as indoctrinating students uh, very, you know, into some sort of anti oil, you know, by default, we're not saying anti oil, but right. we're, you know, we're saying pro earth. Uh, those are very different things, uh, I would say. Um, you know, there's 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 a lot of uh, nuance uh, around those particular terms. But if it's pro Earth, it shouldn't be necessarily. We want to destroy all industries and and make people not have jobs and so on. You know, there are um, things that we have to discuss. But we're in a place now that um, even you know, I just looked at, I just tweeted or shared a chart or put it on Facebook. Um, where, you know, you have Canada, UK, um, Germany, and so on, um, all, all, you know, have defeated the curve in terms of COVID. Um, but, you know, the all, only big outlier is the U.S., which is saw the, the greatest number of um, cases today. The, the problem is it's no longer, like the, political, the, the science is being discarded uh, in the U.S. by far, and the existence of COVID is more of a political opinion. Like wearing a mask is a political opinion. It sounds like if you don't wear a mask, you don't support Trump, right? Uh, or yes, so it's kind of got to that point where it's ridiculous. It's not science-based, it's not critical thinking, it's just simple partisanship and tribalism or whatever you might wanna call it. It's no longer political debate. So we have to work to, together to call those things out too. Um, to help people understand it. It does not mean indoctrination into, you know, a, a certain political party or certain beliefs. People could still have those, but we do need to get better at, you know, how do we do discourse better? How do we, um, how, how do we, how do we talk out things? Is it possible to change your mind? Um, one of the things that I do in my graduate courses is we, uh, the one I just taught this, this summer, um, we do a debate format in Zoom. We basically take, a, um, uh, you know, a topic like, uh, we'll just put a, you know, a, an affirmative, like a, a declarative sentence, like um, technology is ruining childhood, right? And then we have an agree and disagree camp. Uh, we get into sort of these big, amazing debates. We, we measure the, um, the class's uh, response before, and then we measure it afterwards. And we get a sense of you know whether or not we've shifted anyone's opinion given the arguments. And of course, the people arguing these things don't necessarily agree with their argument. They're they're having to play a role. But the, even the simple debate format, we can do that over Zoom. We can do all sorts of things that are really powerful over online spaces um, through written form, through blogging, through a Flipgrid or whatever it might be. Lots of ways to um, talk about to demonstrate, to, to dive into um, political discourse that is intelligent versus some of the stuff that we experience out there. 
And unfortunately, there's not a lot of politicians out there who are doing a good job uh, of, you know, creating an environment for, for good discourse. And we've got to get better at that. Yeah. And, and you mentioned these platforms too, uh, you know, using Zoom for a debate and using Flipgrid and different tools. And and it segues into another great question about, you know, the pandemic. In your talk, you mentioned that we weren't as successful during the early days of COVID as we could have been because we had not prepared our students uh, to be independent and autonomous learners. Knowing that this is, you know, it needs to be a priority uh, going to the fall. For teachers as much as students, what is one thing we should all do this summer to prepare? Um, you know, that's a good point. Uh, you know, what does one thing to do? Um, I, I'd look differently at our assignments, very, very differently. So, so you know, getting back to the idea of things we can Google, kids, kids can do that. Like taking up inquiry, passion-based type projects, implementing this somewhere into your curriculum, I think is really important. Um, the, um, the example I used in the, in the keynote was something called the learning project that I do in my graduate and undergraduate classes and I work with high school students doing the same thing. Uh, and it's simply taking up something you've always wanted to take up. Like my daughter's uh, in the basement right now. She's supposed to be, you know, she was supposed to be working on math. You know, math didn't go so well for her. Um, uh, but she's, uh, you know, she's, what she really wants to do is art and music. And so, you know, we're working on a project together with her um, uh, because she wasn't able to really get space in her schedule to take up those classes in high school. And it's really unfortunate because these this passion for these space for these things are just taken from her. So, you know, find those five, the, you know, your your students passions, let them take up, give them some space to do something with that uh, and you know, if you're not a music teacher, that's fine. If you're not a, a language teacher, that's fine. As long as they can share the artifacts and, um, you know, share and make visible uh, or make their learning visible, I think that's what you assess it on, less about, uh, about how far they get or how you can possibly assess how far they get. But it's really, you know, looking seriously at inquiry-driven or, you know, a question that needs some answering or a passion-based project that students really want to take up um, they, and document their learning. And then as we start to better understand what resources are out there or how to learn online, you can start to apply that to other places, right? So if your math is, you know, not working so well, um, you know, you can get your traditional math instruction, but there's, there's plenty of places to look on. Um, you know, taking a site like one of my favorites is Desmos. Um, there, there's so many great examples on a site like that, that you can take up um, collaborative um, assignments that are both asynchronous, that can be done both asynchronously or synchronously um, that, that aren't your traditional worksheet math problems. And introducing students to all of these alternate ways of learning alternate resources, uh, I think is such an important part of this. Um, and just, you know, but first getting them to be successful in learning something uh, that they care about and then uh, trying to apply that elsewhere. And I think that's exactly right. It's learning something that they care about, you know, passion based. And, and for, I would say for, for years, we've been talking passion projects and things like that, but yeah. it's almost this heightened awareness now that, you know, whether it's at home learning or half and half or whatever it might be come the fall, you know, even if we're back to face-to-face -face learning, this is a new realization that, 
passion-based learning is is very important because yeah. it, it, it gives you more authenticity to what you are learning and, and how you're learning it. And then let's say you do go home, you know, this concept of, of homework, you know, goes away because now I'm just continuing my learning because I want to, and I yeah. want to engage in that learning. Well, and I think, you know, we took so much for granted as teachers in a face-to-face -face classroom. Like we, we, we take for granted proximity and presence and engagement because we're in front of these students. And, um, and because, you know, we have, they have to do the curriculum to pass versus, you know, in, in Saskatchewan and other jurisdictions, it's like, just do what you can. This is supplementary learning. Like very few kids bought into it. Um, from what I'm hearing from teachers is, you know, some of them who are really getting pushed by parents, probably, but a lot of them just tuned out. They got, they got bored of it because it didn't count for anything. But, you know, imagine a world where we didn't have, you know, it, it, we had an assessment system where nothing actually counted the way that we count it. Uh, and it actually just matters because it's things that, that are, you know, generally within the curriculum, things that we, we expect to learn. I mean, curriculum at its best is a guess of what we expect students to learn or what we want students to learn. It's a guess of what they might need or what we think is appropriate for every human to have uh, as a flourishing human. Um, but we could do curriculum a lot better, a lot more interdisciplinary. Um, and again, back to the, the passion-based piece. Um, so, you know, coming back in the classroom, um, you know, uh, one of the first things I would suggest is, you know, we may we may end up in the classroom for half a year, uh, a month. We never we may uh, we don't even know exactly what might happen depending on you know cases and and so on. Um, what are you going to do in that space? What are you going to do in the time with them? The very limited time that could be a week, that could be a month. How are you going to actually make the best of that? And so I think that's going to be a lesson here. Is um, you know how do we actually to make the best of the time that we're together. Well, how do you most appropriately use that? And then how do you do homework differently? How do you do um, all of the other things differently um, given what you've learned about, um, you know, some of the digital tools and organizing, um, uh, you know, some of, our, some of our learning in different ways, all the things that teachers have picked up, how do we actually do that better to support not just the mode that we're talking about remote learning, but to support learning in every mode. Yeah. And, and you mentioned, you know, what are you going to do with them when you are face to face? Those first days are crucial. Um, and, you know, we often take the, the fact that we have 185 days with our students, especially here in New Brunswick. And yeah. we say, well, we have all this time, so that'll just be pushed till next week. You know, yeah. it, when one thing that COVID-19 has really showed us is that what happens if that next week isn't face to face? How do you, yeah. you can't rely on the ability you know, I go back to the, the days when I was in the classroom, you know, whether you're juggling or whether you're putting on a show for students to keep their, them entertained and keep them engaged. But what if you're not there? How do you how do you do that? And, you know, we'll reflect on a video that you shared during your keynote this morning um, of this time lapse of this young girl who's sitting on her bed and and you can see almost her. She's disengaged from learning. She's in front of her laptop and you can tell that time as it goes by, she tries to be engaged and then is almost becoming so frustrated, you know. That, that could be almost, you know, a good portion of students that would have experienced that exact kind of feeling yeah. of, of being disengaged and almost this anger, if you will, because you, you don't have your friends, you're out of your social context, and you're being asked to do things on a timeline, you know, as if you were still in the classroom.
Yeah, you know, and I think, you know, the video is powerful. Like you, you can see, like, I don't know the story behind it, but, you know, if this, if, if, if the uh, author, the, the, the girl who, you know, the student who did this was actually that disengaged, but she was able to produce that amazing video. Like, if you look at the detail, it's, it's absolutely amazing. Like, why aren't more efforts? Like, I'm, 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 I'm hoping in the best case scenario that this was a project that was led by that teacher and like that, that teacher found this girl's, um, you know, her, her passion and so on. Like, that would be the best case situation. But if this is just something she did on the side, um, you know, it, despite of school, then we're, we're missing something. But, you know, there's, you know, kids are creative all the time. If you look at some of the stuff, just on you know Instagram or or TikTok or um, you know even Snapchat, some of the things that they're actually doing in those spaces are incredibly creative. Um, and so, how do we bring that stuff? And I'm, I'm not I'm not saying mandate TikTok and Instagram and social media in, in classes, but you know there are ways at different levels. Um, and of course, with with children's consent to use particular tools in particular spaces, or or they'd be willing to if they're using them already. Um, you, you just have to be very careful and cautious about those particular uh, pieces. Um, but, you know, back to the idea of being in the classroom, um, you know, the things that I, I would suggest is that's when you, you know, we, we really have to establish our presence, our relationships and trust. Uh, you know, that's what's happening that first week. And, and, and many teachers do that anyway, but we have to do it to an amplified extent because we don't know when that proximal type teaching is going to be taken away from us. So how do we do our best to maintain those connections? Uh, what are we going to put in place to, um, you know, again, maintain and grow those connections when, um, you know, inevitably we're going to go back to a remote teaching uh, model once we see wave two, perhaps wave three. Yeah, absolutely right, and it's it's gauging what what we're doing, how we're doing it, and 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 with the unknown, you know, we yeah. don't know what that timeline looks like, and we don't know what might happen. Um, so another question is, you know, what are your thoughts on passion projects versus purpose projects? Um, you know, it's a good point. Uh, it depends on what the pur whose purpose, right? Like, I think that's the biggest issue around those things. I think purpose projects are fantastic. I think passion projects. Uh, have their place. I think they, they can be alternated, but it, it can't be necessarily just the purpose of the curriculum, purpose of the things that we're supposed to teach. Um, what is what is the purpose? Whose purpose? Uh, and how do we, um, you know, certainly allow for the flexibility um, in either? Um, and I'm not saying like you build an entire curriculum around passion projects because we're not going to get very far in terms of what we mandate. So I think you need to use more guided things like purpose projects, like inquiry projects to certainly get through the uh, through, through the through the um, curriculum in, in a different way. Um, but, I, you know, you know, the things that we shouldn't be doing as much anymore is just the direct teaching that we do a lot more, especially in high school classes. Uh, in elementary, it's not nearly the, uh, as much of a problem, but you know you can find that stuff. That stuff's a dime a dozen on 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 YouTube, especially with in the maths and sciences. I mean, this stuff's been done and over you know done over and over again. Like I have no problems with, and I think it's I, I would encourage teachers to do it themselves, like to not just say here you watch Khan Academy for the next week, because um, I think your voice matters and the way that you explain and the context that you're in 
does matter. And so if you can do screencasts and that sort of thing, that's great. But um, do that for homework. That's not something you want to do face to face, you know, bring in a blended environment. Um, and again, you know, back to the idea, I, I think we need to switch things around purpose, passion, uh, some traditional, but the, the, you know, the greater number of uh, instructional strategies we can use will reach more learners and we can take up a more differentiated space. And I guess the other thing we haven't really spoken about is, um, you know, the, the thing, the, the great opportunity that we saw here with learning is we were less about timelines. Like we, we threw up the schedule <laughs> in some ways, um, even, you know, what comes first, what comes second. And a lot of, you know, what I saw with, from teachers is we, you know, you have that face-to-face time, but a lot of the stuff that was much more flexible. And, you know, if only we built curriculum that was much more flexible, that it wasn't a guess of how long, how much time it would take to get through this particular unit. Um, or how much synchronous or asynchronous time we would need. I just, I just think that there's, there's huge opportunities right now for really revamping uh, both pedagogy and curriculum. If we just start to take some data, start to listen to students, uh, and of course listen to teachers in terms of what they're seeing. And I think you hit two things there, which, you know, you mentioned the blended model, which is it's not all passion projects all day long, every day. Yeah. You know, there's a blended idea of this passion. There's purpose. There's some traditional involved in there. Um, but also to the idea of that scheduling. You know, we we're, we moved to a virtual environment quite rapidly, you know, and hopefully the idea is not to just replicate the schedule that was what in the brick and mortar yeah. building into a virtual, right? And and saying, you know, Alec, I need you to sit in front of the computer from 8.30 until 9.30. That's going to be your math class, you know, and then we have from 9.30 till 10.30 will be, you know, science class or whatever, uh, because we do, there's an opening here, which is this blended idea of opportunity of being able to create this new learning environment, interdisciplinary, blended, uh, with a variety of tools at play. Uh, yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, back to schedule, and I'm not, I'm not advocating for a structureless environment, but the schedule that we have, the 9 to 3.30 version of it, no longer has to be in place when we're in a remote learning environment. Um, but the teacher has to be, should be involved. And, and parents, if, if, if that possibility exists, uh, it may not for all students, so it certainly will not for all students, to, to build structure. So it's, it's from the space that you learn, you know, the, 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 the space that you carve out in your home, um, the time that you have. And for, for many different reasons, uh, parent work schedules or your own interests, you may, or, or the way that you're fatigued in different ways. Um, you know, it, it's okay for a child to start at 10 o'clock and finish, you know, later on if there's a number of fitness breaks and so on. But as long as there's some structure, and I think the uh, the biggest thing, you know, one of the biggest things that we do, and I'm hearing from students, is they just need that structure, but they don't necessarily need the structure that every kid has. Um, and, and that's, you know, that that is the flexibility that we see in university courses. You know, students ask for um, as, as much as like I love the synchronous, um, and I make the mandatory for my classes, but. Uh, but a lot of students or a lot of students are asking for the asynchronous. They want the, the pure flexibility and they'll take courses because of that flexibility. They don't necessarily need the synchronous one-to-ones. Um, but not all students will also do well in those environments. And that's one of the reasons I keep them uh, is because uh, when, when I did allow them to have like a fully asynchronous course I found, or, or an optional course, I'd always have the synchronous sessions. Um, students that didn't come to those sessions just felt disconnected. They felt 
um, like a, watching a video of this is not quite the same as being part of it. And there's just some, there's just something different about it um, that that captures it in a different way. When it comes to instruction, I'm not saying the podcast and so on because it feels like you're there, but when it comes to instruction, it just, I don't know, it's not the same. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, you, there's a point of, and you referred, referred to Khan Academy, and there's, there's a thing about watching somebody teach something, but then there's also yeah. this part of being involved in, you know, watching the conversation unfold and, and, and being in the moment and not just watching the recording of it. But I do encourage yeah. everyone to listen to the podcast. Um, and I would say that there there's also this sense of personalization too of, there may be some students who who prefer asynchronous over the synchronous version and and being, you know, in, in these different types of models. We go back to blended, right? It's the idea here that there's this flexibility uh, to be able to to engage in that. Um, so, Alec, before you know, uh, before we take off, I think that's it. We all we have for questions. Um, you know, the people that took part in the keynote this morning, as well as the people listening now, uh, where can they access whether it be your presentation uh, this morning or resources that you may have to offer? So I will provide um, uh, the, the keynote, uh, the slides. So um, someone's asking uh, in the um, in the chat. Um, so for instance, to talk more about the, the video in particular, but the video will be there. Uh, I know it was made by a Toronto District School Board student. Um, and so I can probably find the backstory, but the video will be in there. There'll be a link so you can find the YouTube video and, and so on. Um, but all the all the uh, sort of the essential links I have, so I'll have a Google Doc with with everything, uh, as well as links to the slides, so people can look at the presentation in either PDF or keynote form. Uh, and of course, in terms of resources, I've already had several emails of, of teachers who just want more stuff. So uh, reach out to me. My email is coros c o u r o s at gmail dot com, uh, or find me on Twitter if it's just you know if it's a question that. You want to ask for a number of people. If you need personal help, give me an email. If you want something that can be asked and answered in the public, uh, then, you know, seek me out on Twitter. I'm always happy and, and try to be generous with my time. And well, you know, I'll put the, the description to all those things, your your Twitter account, your email address, the link to those resources you mentioned all in the podcast description. Sure. Um, so if you head over to the Anchor platform or Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whichever one, it'll all be in the description of the podcast. And we'll host this video up on the Atlantic Education Summit website as well. Um, and we'll make sure that we post uh, your resource links there as well so that um, anyone who participated in the event can go check them out um, and also have access to them so, so they can look at them at a later date. Um, so before we take off, Alec, um, is there anything else that you'd like to say uh, to our listeners here or at home? <laughs> what should I say? Um, it's a loaded you know, question. I think, you know, it's a really good, it's a really good one. I, you know, I, I think um, teachers have had have done tremendously well in this short time. Like basically, you know, so many started from scratch when it comes to, to digital media and digital technologies. They were, you know, for whatever reason, they, they weren't engaging, they're more traditionally styled. Uh, and then to be thrust into remote teaching, all of a sudden you're going zero to uh, 200 basically in many cases. So I, I just, I, I just want to totally, you know, thank those teachers uh, who did, you know, who did so much work uh, for the other teachers who are more technical, technologically adept, who became support teachers in those environments. Uh, everyone took up roles and I'm amazed by 
you know, continually amazed by the resiliency, resiliency of teachers uh, and the students they serve. And, and I think it's just, it, it just, uh, it's an amazing, um, I, I, you know, if, if you want to really see teacher professionality, uh, the ability to learn things quickly, this is a remote, uh, you know, the COVID-19 remote experience. Uh, teachers have come a long way. Students have come a long way. We've got a long way to go because now, uh, at least in my environment, it's going to count now. Like it's not going to be, you know, pretend learning, supplemental learning. It's going to count. Um, but at least we've got a taste of it. And hopefully, we, you know, best of luck in September. And hopefully, we, you know, in a year or two, um, we'll come out of this and uh, be better for it, be better as a profession. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, Alec, I thank you so much for being on the podcast today. And I encourage all of our listeners to follow you on social media at Kuros A. Um, reach out to you via email um, and really just get engaged in the conversation to continue this as we move forward into the unknown during the pandemic, but also past that, you know, how do we include ed tech into transforming education and learning environments, whether we are in person or abroad. So thank you so much for joining me on the podcast and thank you so much for being part of the Atlantic Education Summit and to all of our participants, uh, whether you're listening today or at home, we look forward to having you be part of the event uh, either tomorrow at a later date. Um, and thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at MyCreativePod and subscribe to whatever streaming platform you're listening to us on right now. So thank you all very much, and we'll hear you next time.